Welcome, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Through the Mic. We are your hosts. My name is Malcolm Callender. And I'm Will Aaron. And we have a ama- an amazing episode for you guys today. Yes. Today we have Megan Chan Monero. Uh, Megan is a playwright and now a screenwriter uh, for film and television. I saw Megan's work last, actually, like a year ago from now um last december at uh the new group at play by play play by play is a really cool group um and you should definitely check them out because they're doing some really awesome virtual stuff right now i believe uh but yeah thank you welcome for, welcome for coming joining in us today. from your home jo- yes yeah. <laughs> how are you today thanks so much for having me guys i feel like i need to I feel bad doing this, but I'm trying to not feel bad doing this, which is that I have to correct you that my name is actually pronounced Megan, not Megan. Oh, my God. Because um, on your website, that. on your website, I, I, I was like, oh, I, I love this. Woman. It's OK. <laughs> it's literally my parents, I guess, like wanted to make my life as difficult as humanly possible. Yeah, shout so out to the parents. They've done we know what me, they do. Yeah. I yeah. feel I feel bad. No, but thank, I, thank no, you. No, it's, it's who you are. Yeah, um, let you me, are. Let, let's start off with this. Um. Do you having to correct people on the pronunciation of your names and historically knowing how Asian Americans are always known to like having to present their identity and names um, when writing Good Fortune? What was your experience? What did you learn about yourself? And what do you wish Americans would take more consideration in, in Chinese identities? Yeah, that's wow. That's such a great getting right. There, <laughs> We're known for that. this. We're known for this. Um, you know, when I when I wrote Good Fortune, I I really wanted to write a play about what it what it's like to be multiracial, or at least what my experience is of being biracial in the United States. Like, so I'm half Chinese and half Italian, um, as you can tell by my name, Megan Chan Monero. Uh, and for me, that experience has been like defined by feeling alienated. Um, I feel that Asian populations look at me and they're like, that girl's not Asian, but white populations look at me and they're like, that girl is only Asian. Mm. Uh, and so it's very, it, it feels like you don't fit in because my upbringing is, is a combination of all of those things. And it, it was special because of that. Uh, but it's hard to feel like you fit into a group when you're, um, when you're biracial like that. So with Good Fortune, I wanted to write about that experience, but without having to write a play where I had to like explain to the audience through dialogue, but she's half white, but she's half Asian every other line. So I was like, whose experience would be like mine? And I thought, you know, a girl who had uh, who was Chinese, who had been adopted as a baby by a white family and raised by a white family in suburban New Jersey would look like she knew everything about being Chinese, but would have very little experience with that because of the family that she grew up in. Um, and then I wanted to, you know, play with that and see like, what happens if you turn all of that on its head? And I think, you know, to answer the first part of your question, what, what I'm hoping audiences walk away with is is to not uh to not rush to judgments about people you know i think just because somebody has a name that that you can't pronounce without asking them how to pronounce it or or, or in your case even one that you can and (laughs) even one that you can you should still you should still ask um which is why it was actually kind of cool that the episode started off that way because it you know thematically with your work um it it goes to exactly what you just said yeah sorry (laughs) i just thought that was 
No, no. Yeah, that was much more um, poignant than what I was going to say. So I appreciate you jumping in. Um, no, I, 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 yeah, I just think that, you know, we have a lot of um, misperceptions about Asian Americans in this country. You know, I, I feel like growing up, all I saw were these really silent uh, Asian characters on, in television, or they're talking with an accent, mm-hmm. and we can't understand them. And I think, you know, I wanted to challenge those uh, perceptions in in my work. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned your upbringing in your previous answer. I want to know when during your when during your upbringing, did you find writing and how did it help you step into your uh, multiple identities? Yeah, I always say that my my journey to where I am now started when I was a kid. I wanted to be president of the United States. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I was very, very, very committed to this goal. Um, And it was because as a kid, I was watching The West Wing all the time. I don't know Uh if you guys are West Wing fans, but was obsessed with that show growing up. Um, And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a politician. This must be uh, exactly what being a politician is like. And, you know, I I was bullied a lot as a kid. And I think I was so attracted to these characters who always had the um, right thing to say at the right time in that very Aaron Sorkin style. Mm. Uh, So I was like, if I'm a politician, that is what my life will be like. Turns out that's not what politics is actually like. Learned that quickly. (laughs) realized that what I was actually attracted to were, were these characters and these stories. So I actually started off doing theater in high school and and wanted to be an actor, went to undergrad for acting, realized I was an atrocious actor. Um, and and uh, But I think part of that had to do with the fact that I wanted more agency over the stories that, that I was telling, right? So um, I'd always loved film and television and decided to... Um, go to school to grad school to learn how to write film and television Uh, and i went to northwestern for grad school and the program there is writing for the stage and screen so i was forced to take playwriting had the most incredible um playwriting professor in the world thomas bradshaw while i was there and he completely changed my perceptions of what a play could be you know like grow i grew up in the suburbs of new york city so i saw a lot of theater but it was all like Broadway, um, mm-hmm. Broadway musicals and Broadway plays. And anybody who um, has read my work will tell you that that is not what I really do. <laughs> so uh, the thing that was great was that Thomas kind of showed me like all of the crazy weird shit that you want to do, you can do it in a play and here's how. Um, so I fell in love with playwriting. And then, you know, I still really wanted to work in film and television and after her school was done, it was like, where are you going to live, New York or L.A.? And it was Thomas who said to me, he's like, go to New York. You can write plays because you like writing plays now. And you can be in New York with your family and your friends. And then uh, when you're in New York, people will see your plays. They'll like them. And then you'll get to just work in film and television. And that plan has worked <laughs> insanely well. Like, insanely well. I, he might be psychic on top of being a phenomenal playwright. Who knows? Yeah, shouts out to our professors, man. Um, what was something that quarantine taught you that you don't think you would have learned uh, without it? When it, uh, you, when it comes to your writing or when it comes to you and your individual craft? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. Something that quarantine has taught me. You know, it, during quarantine, I, I started a lot of my film and television work. And a lot of film and television is about uh, planning. Like they want you to do an outline or they want to, to, you know, have a full pitch of what you're going to write before you start writing it. Mm. And I wasn't used to doing that because as a playwright, I just, I just go for it. (laughs) You know, I hear these characters speaking and I put them on the page. And, um, I think having to create an outline for good fortune, the movie or, or having to like write a, a film pitch or a TV pitch um, and put together stories and think them all the way through has been a really useful tool. I don't know if I'll do it all the time going forward with plays, but it's definitely, you know, that planning is something I always neglected and, and it was kind of forced to do during the quarantine and, and it's been incredibly helpful. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have such a specific, you have a style about your work. It's this 
satirical sort of you push these um social uh these these political and and social ideas to the most extreme um is there a reason you gravitate towards that style <laughs> yes i don't know if it's the right answer but it's it's because i literally hate when the audience is bored it's for my huh. own selfish reasons huh. that like if I don't hear <laughs> the audience audibly responding to what's happening, I'm terrified that they're going to what oh, I'm geez. doing. So, like, that's that's incredible because I was not imagine. I was imagining it. Your answer would be like, I, I want to uh, push something to their to the most extreme so that people like like Mei Ling's. Um, last monologue where it's like you had to see all yeah. of this happen to understand that we should just not judge people for what they are like that's what i get out of your work is like you you have these extreme circumstances to show that this is what could happen or i need to show you the extreme of of this kind of thing uh, to to, to, to change you like you know the realism it's almost like this idea that realism is not enough it, it's that's that's what I get out of it and that's why I enjoy satire and extremism because it it pushes it it challenges me as an audience member to confront things that realism is too real to confront you know it's like oh i i see this in my normal life like you know it, it's uh, we have a teach we have a professor who likes to use the word pedestrian like sometimes i feel that <laughs> sometimes i feel like realism when realism can get a bit pedestrian and i enjoy i enjoy satire i enjoy when playwrights like you are able to uh milk the most out of something but for a very simple reason and and i love that at the end of the play it's like the the character is out in front of everybody and she's just like this is why i had to do this to show you to not judge people for what you think they are <laughs> i will say this though i don't think you would like me as an audience member because i am so quiet like <laughs> i am so silent no matter like uh, I, I pretty much like everything I read or watch, but for instance, reading Mei Ling's and her mother's relationship and understanding that, I was just speechless. And I think that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast was to hear more voices and and learn about different people and their stories. Because of because of the two plays that you've written, we, we are Wombat and Good Fortune. And I think that's what I love most about your writing is that you bring voices that otherwise we wouldn't uh, think about in like mainstream media or whatnot. And I want I want to go deeper in your language. When we think about your language, mm. how do you think uh, Zoom or different platforms that we see people acting in right now affects one's writing or how do you think your writing would change knowing that people are viewing most movies and tv shows now through these things right here and we're not able to go to a movie theater or really sit in a broadway show or yeah broadway theater yeah What's so funny is that I too am the most silent audience member. Yeah, like, like, I'll go yeah. to a stand up comedy show. I, I'll have a great time, but I won't laugh out loud. Yes, finally. People are like, oh, you hate it. I'm like, no, I no. just don't laugh out loud. But then that is the thing that I crave most from the audience. <laughs> right. Audible reaction. <laughs> Because then, because I think, it, and I, I, like, I wish it was something as beautiful as what you said, but it, it truly is that I, I, super selfishly just want to know that they're having a good time and that they don't feel like, why am I here? Wow. What am I doing? Um, but I think, you know, to answer your question about, about the way that viewing has changed, you know, definitely zoom, zoom 
theater is tough, right? Like the thing that we love about the theater is that we're living and breathing in the same space as other people and we're having that shared experience. So Zoom theater is a tough one. But for me, I think, you know, part of where the audible reaction, what's tied to that for me largely is this idea that I always want to make work that is hopefully prestigious without being pretentious. And what I mean by that is it's work that can and will challenge you to think differently, but that it's accessible to a a wide range of people. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've had, (laughs) I was doing a lot of other things before I was able to make money as a playwright. Mm. Um, and I come from a, a very like, you know, multiracial family. So wanting to make work that speaks to all of the people that I've encountered, whether it's somebody who I know because I worked with them at a retail store and and they don't, you know, most of the time they want to watch reality television because they just want something where their brain can check out. Or it's somebody that I, um, you know, somebody like my parents who are, who are like crazy intellectuals and, and love to find the layers and everything. I want people from across the spectrum to be able to come to my work and and have a great time. Mm. And if they want to, they can dissect it and find all of the cool meaning and what's happening. But if they just want to come and like check out for two hours and be entertained, they can do that too. And I think that that's really, you know, part of what I'm always looking to do. And that's, you know, something that I aim to do with like a screen, right? Like I can reach a wider range of people that way than just like a New York theater going audience. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, totally. Uh, That just makes me think, would you say having to feed from so many, because New York alone is a melting pot full of different cultures and traditions. Do you think having to feed to so many different point of views is the biggest challenge of your writing? And if that's not, what do you think is the biggest obstacle you face when starting a project, starting a new story? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I can give you an, a more concrete example that I think is would be helpful in explaining what I'm talking about. And it's that, so in Good Fortune, which you guys read, um, the the part of the main conflict is that Mei Ling wants to go to Stanford, which is in California. Mm-hmm. But her mom wants her to go to Princeton, which is in New Jersey where they live so she can commute. And to like a New York theater audience where people are like often more educated or have you just have a higher rate of people who go to college, they understand like a lot more about that. But once you start to get that out into a regular audience, like I think it's only 33% of Americans go to to a four-year university wow. and an even smaller percentage of that of that actually finished you can fact check me on that after but i'm pretty <laughs> sure it's something i'm pretty sure it's really close to because i yeah. looked it up recently and i was mortified right and so for me i was like when as we're translating the play into a movie i'm like i don't want to make it this insular thing that that you know people who aren't co- college isn't on their radar they're not going to relate to that story they're not going to be able to connect to it in any way shape or form or they're or they're going to just like check out of that part of that story and miss something that i'm trying to say so like tweaking that storyline so that in the movie you know it's still mailing deciding between princeton and stanford but it's because her girlfriend just like wants to move to california and not because of because that in the play the girlfriend also wants to go to stanford so like adding another layer of like Representing a wider range of experiences, I I guess, is what I'm saying, rather than just Mm. making it something that like is um, is super crazy specific and and, you know, people can't necessarily relate to across the board. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you. Oh, Um, while reading Good Fortune and hearing you talk about it, it's clear to me that different parts of the story were birthed from different fragments of your personal life. I don't know if the case is the same way for We Are Wombats, but after talking about Good Fortune, I want to know about your personal journey with We Are Wombats. It's a much shorter play. It's it's a one-act play, I believe. And I want to know about when, where did that come from? Because, yeah. and so, yeah, and if so, yeah. one, if... You can take some brief time on explaining the story for the people listening and how 
I want to ask, like, being a writer, what is it like to invest your being into a project, give your all to a project, and then having to leave that alone to start another one? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's such a good question. Um, well, Wombats is my one of my favorite plays I've ever written. Did you I write? Did you no. write? Which one did you write first? Good Fortune or we, you wrote multiple things, but which one came? Which project came first? Wombat. I wrote Wombats came in the middle of writing Good Fortune, so I was like finishing. I think I had finished like a rough first draft of Good Fortune, which is like very different from the draft that you read, but yeah. like the concept is still the same. And then I wrote um, We Are Wombats maybe like a month after that. And then I presented like the first reading of Good Fortune a month after that. Um, and what's crazy is that both the first production of We Are Wombats and um, and the first production of Good Fortune were directed by the same director, my incredible, amazing friend, Kylie Brown, directed mm. both. And like, I feel like maybe that's why they there's something very similar about the two of them because she like helped me create like a great thread in both of them. But yeah, um, Wombats is crazy. Like for people who haven't read it, it's it's just about two um, morning show anchors who are uh, trying to get a, a prime time anchor spot, but it, it it unleashes sort of these like animalistic instincts Primal, within them and like human instincts yeah. is what I loved. It's what I loved about uh, both plays. I didn't necessarily see a commonality between both worlds. But what I did love about your writing is it, you bring out that human primal instincts that I feel like we sort of gloss over nowadays. And I think we forget that, you know, we're, we're human, like human beings are animals. And when there's like a goal, like that greed comes out, <laughs> that greed comes out of uh, some people. So yeah, it, it was it was really enjoyable to hear, hear both stories really. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'll, I'll let you. What was the, was there a specific moment that made you want to write Wombats? So Wombats was written for, I'm, I'm a member of Youngblood, which is. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Woo! Shout out Billy. <laughs> Shout out Billy. <laughs> yes. Love, love Youngblood Ensemble Studio Theater's like playwriting collective. And we do these like brunch plays mm. where we write to a theme. So the theme of this brunch was uh like impending disaster because the day of the brunch was the day that the I, the titanic hit the iceberg but then it sunk the next day so the idea of the brunch was like plays about impending disaster Whoa. so they're actually <laughs> we talk about the titanic in the in in wombat yeah, so yeah, yeah that was kind of like the jumping off point i I really don't know where it came from. To answer your like earlier question, right. if I borrowed anything from my life, um, my girlfriend, her mom paints rocks. And mm. there are monologues in the play. Yeah, that's my favorite part of the play. <laughs> yeah, those are literally things that I copied right out of her mouth. And and when we did the first production, we like used rocks that she had actually I love painted. It. I love so, it. So like yeah. borrowing from it. For sure. Do you think it's would you say do you think it's dangerous f to be a writer and produce stories from your from one's personal life? Because it makes me think like you are being so vulnerable to a massive group of people. I'm wondering when I think about writers that I grew up reading, Nikki Giovanni is my all-time favorite. I listen to the words of Cornell West, and I hear all these people bring stuff out of their personal lives. It makes me think, you know, what like what other way are we supposed to come up with these stories and bounce off bounce off from and create these stories? But at the same time, do you feel any fear when it comes to being so vulnerable with thousands and thousands of people you may never even meet? Yeah, I, I feel so much fear about it. And that's kind of why I think a lot of my work is like one step removed, mm. right? Like right. with good fortune, especially like it's not a biographical story. Yeah. My favorite thing in the entire world is when people are like, is this based on your real life? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not 
here. You should, you should say yes. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? I, I, this happens to me all the time. I have another play called Art Therapy, which I love, which mm. is even more insane than Good Fortune in the sense that, like, the play is about uh, a guy who owns an ice cream stand and his employee, like, cooking and selling crack out of the ice cream stand. And, like, people ask me if that's based on my like, life. And I'm like, do you think that I cooked crack one summer for fun like this is this is saying a lot about what you think about me but yeah to, to go back to your question i i really feel like um i always take it like one step removed right like good fortune is about my experience uh being biracial but it's not through a like biographical lens mm-hmm. um wombat's yeah i'm borrowing that one's a little more like i am borrowing things right from um my girlfriend's mom but you know, the rest of the story isn't based on anything um, that's personal to me. And I think that that's the only way to do it. I'm really bad at being vulnerable in front of like large groups of people. So uh, definitely would terrify me, I think, to write anything super uh, biographical. Right. Do you ever think of certain prompts or ideas of stories that you at this point in your life feel like you're not ready to go into Mm -hmm. or I and I asked this question to really ask you know where are your like fear boundaries where are places that you feel like you still need to like strive for yeah you know I think the thing that I actually this is going to sound weird because we're talking about good fortune which is such a like Asian play but I think I, I have a lot of insecurity around being an Asian playwright you know I am like especially in the wake of everything's going on, very cognizant of the fact that I'm also half white and have mm-hmm. probably, you know, benefited from the fact that if I want to, my name can be Megan Monero. And that doesn't show the fact to the world that I'm Asian American, right? Like you just, if you see Megan Monero, you're like, oh, that's a white Italian girl. Like you're good to go. And I'm very aware that I've probably benefited from that in my lifetime, right? And I mm. think that, it's irresponsible of me to always do Asian projects and not recognize the fact that I'm mm. half white and that I'm coming from that multiracial perspective. And, you know, I know a lot of, of people who are biracial, who are, who, you know, only want to tell Asian stories and, and that's great for them. But for me, a large part of it is how do I balance the two? Right. So there's a lot of Asian like very Asian specific projects that I want to work on, but I want to make sure that I do the, the, the due diligence, right? Like I do the research that I really need to do to make sure that they're completely authentic because just because my mom is Chinese doesn't mean that I know everything about what that experience is like. So I think for me, that's kind of where a lot of my insecurity and like boundaries lie. Yeah. I I love that answer. Sorry. Yeah. Um, So when you think about your plays wanting to be prestigious and not pretentious. So I was just really taken aback by your answer. I'm just trying to still formulate a question. I hope in a good way and not like wild. Absolutely in a good way. No, no, no. We're loving all of this. Um, That, that your answer actually makes me want to ask you about, um, who inspired you when you were younger? Like, what artists do you look up to in, in your work and as a person? Yeah, it's so funny because I feel like the first quote unquote artist that ever inspired me was like, I wanted to be Michelle Kwan. Mm. <laughs> so, like, like, figure skating. To yeah. <laughs> so that I think says a lot about me. Uh, oh, yeah, it does. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um. You know, I loved growing up. I loved writers like Aaron, like I said, West Wing, Aaron Sorkin yeah. was somebody that I always admired. And I just his language is perfect. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like it, it's also a weird one because I've just as my writing has evolved, my taste has evolved. So like, of course, it it stands across the gamut. Like I was obsessed with Charlie Kaufman for a long time. And I think that's probably why I'm not afraid to do weird shit, right? Like um, Eternal Sunshine and Adaptation and those movies were such a formative part of my life. And also like Darren Aronofsky films, right? Like that's where I get, I think a little bit of that like borderline on horror sort of thing. 
Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like Thomas Bradshaw. I know he's such a controversial playwright, but it, he was such an inspiration to me when I was first learning how to tell the stories that I wanted to tell in plays. Um, and then now I'm just like influenced by the friends and people that help me make my own work or, or like the playwrights that I love. Like, you know, I went to school with Will Arbery um, and Sophia Levitsky White, who both of their work is incredible. Um, and, you know, there's so many playwrights in Youngblood who inspire me. Uh, and and For sure, yeah. it's just been like, it feels like all the, the beautiful thing about theater is that so community, right? And you get to not only read the play, but a lot of times like you can find ways to interact with it in another way too, right? Like you could see it or you can talk to the playwright or talk to somebody who was a part of it. Like it's such a small community and you, and you can find ways to learn more about that work. And, and I think that what's been so phenomenal has been meeting so many theater artists who like are just willing to share so much of their soul with you. And, and, and that vulnerability has really helped shape me too. Right. And then, so, and today when you are, I guess, in your element, when you are in the middle of this one project and you're trying to meet deadlines, what, what do you find yourself doing to, take a step away and like regain your sanity, especially as a writer. Cause I feel like being a writer, I think for maybe television, I, I think writers don't get enough respect as they should. I think it kind of just goes straight to the actors, but you have to understand like when you're writing, like you are creating this world for actors to play in and be in. So I think with all the stress that you may endure on a day-to-day -day basis, what do you usually find yourself doing to refuel your genius? Um, that my answer is going to be so embarrassing that I just want to preface it, which is that my <laughs> favorite thing to do to procrastinate is to watch BTS music videos on yes. YouTube, like the same ones over and over <laughs> and over again. There's something so comforting about that to me. Uh, so embarrassing to admit that, but it's the truth. And I didn't, I didn't have a good lie in the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely tough to, to make work during such a crazy time. And, you know, the very beginning of the pandemic, I, I didn't do anything really. Like I didn't put together plays for a long time, but again, I think it's like the people in the community that reach out to you. And, you know, I was able to finish a play because I was, uh, I was working on one with our mutual friend, Nick Polonio. Yeah. And, um, I was able to get it done because I had Nick, in my ear being like, Hey, how, how's it going? Like, let's talk about it. And, you know, he'll be like, you know, let's go find six random actors and we'll, we'll do a reading just for us so we can hear it. And doing things like that, I think has been incredibly helpful in, in keeping myself going that and BTS music videos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for any young writers who are up and coming and are, caught in the middle of this grind culture, which is kind of inevitable for a lot of artists because, you know, we want to make a real impact. But at the same time, I think we lose our heads and just like... Or like the, the kernel of passion that made us do it in the first place you're talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so I'm curious to know, we're still kind of like in quarantine or whatever p period we're in right now but for sure what would you have what advice would you have for young writers who are struggling with trying to make a uh, impact and mm. but are at the same time are trying to maneuver through like writer's block and who feel like deprived creatively that's such a great question you know i for a long time I was not writing. Like I took a lot of time between graduating from grad school and getting to the point where I am now. And uh, a lot of it was because I didn't have anything to say, right? That was worth saying. And I think, you know, some sometimes people produce just a lot of work and that's how they work. But for me, it was like, if yeah. I don't have anything yeah. to say, I, I, I'm just not going to say anything. Um, and it wasn't until I had the idea for Good Fortune that I really started to to push me to keep going. But, you know, I, I think at one of the pressures that I felt as a young writer and 
and I'm sure you guys probably feel too, is like, do I just write the thing that, that I know is going to get me into mm. the room, right? Like so many people would tell me, go write a normal play, right? Like write that living room family drama that you know a theater is going to be fine producing because it's got five white actors and like drama, but it's a nice story at the end and people will want to see it and then they'll go out to dinner and forget that they ever saw it. And I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, 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 I think I probably could, but I don't want to. Yeah. So I kept writing the weird shit that I was writing and, and people kept telling me you should change, you should change, you should change. And I didn't. And I kept being like, I don't want to, because that's not what I want to do. And I don't want people to know me as doing that. And then I think that staying true to your voice in that way is the best thing you can do. And if it means not writing for a little while, because you don't have a unique perspective and, or your voice the way it is, 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 isn't coming through, then that's okay. You know, I think it's okay to have periods of writer's block, but as long as you're still listening. And what mm. I mean by that is like going out into the world and, and picking up on the little things. Like I'm notoriously bad at like when I go out, I mean, not now, but when I went out to dinners and stuff, like I'm always listening to conversations yeah, happening really like two, it. three tables over. How can we, not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, can you, how can we not exactly? And it's, it makes me the rudest dinner guest, but I'm always like curious about human behavior. Um, so, uh, yeah, me like, too. I'll, always... Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll be like, I'll be like eating with my friend and I'll be like, wait, are you listening to this too? And they're like, what? No. And I'm like, you're missing this. <laughs> yes, totally. Oh my God. It's so bad. My girlfriend gets so mad at me. She's like, you're not even listening to what I'm saying. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, what I just say? I was like, I don't know, but these people are having a conversation. Like this guy over here though, he might quit his job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what and like I don't think it's necessarily like obviously I don't like go home and put that in a play, but when you're listening to people and you're taking in like what is the plight of everyday people and what are mm -hmm. the things that people are, you know, getting riled up about or, or talking to their friends about, you're you're tapping into something and, and it's often that kind of stuff that will, will spark something in your head. Yeah. What, what would you say you hope what do you, what would you say um, your intentions are with a play like We Are Wombats? Mm. And when it's being viewed in front of a silent or maybe not silent audience, what do you hope is the main thing they take away from a play like that? Knowing of its length and knowing of the type of anchors that we see go at each other. Yeah, wom Wombats for me is mostly about like, the way I approach any sort of short play is like, I just want you to have a good time, right? Mm. Like the last thing I want you to do is be like, this 10 minute play feels like two hours <laughs> long. And we've all sat through those 10 minute plays where you're like, this should have ended three days ago. And yet here we still are <laughs> the longest 10 minutes of my life. Um, and I, I never want it to feel like that. So like with any sort of short play I'm writing, I want it to feel like, like it's fast, like you're living in it. Like there's no, there's no, um, there's no wasted time. Right. And so with wombats, you know, the goal of wombats is always like, just have a good time. And I think like I had a theater teacher who used to say it's called a play for a reason. And mm. <laughs> it's such a cheesy phrase, but in for, for short plays like wombats, it really does. That's what, it, where I'm approaching it from. And like, you know, obviously there's some social context to wombats and like some commentary on the way that people act. But if you don't want to take, like I said, prestigious without being pretentious, like if you don't want to see any of those layers in it, you don't have to. You can just have a great time. Right. Do you think being a writer right now today, I don't know the date, I don't know today's date, but do you think writers are at the forefront of deciding the attitude of a given community. So specifically, I want to know, like, since Biden's inauguration, we are in a very vulnerable yet, like, we want to be enlightened point, like, state right now as a country. Do you think, yeah. as a writer, 
you are held to writing certain types of stories or do you think you are to still keep on writing plays like Good Fortune and really like like getting at like the core of like human thought or do you think you are supposed to write more like ear candy, eye candy, like or an obligation to the political climate, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, like, like yeah. we are wombats, but still, like, ease in with like still certain important causes and historical references. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I think I would say I always go back to to like what I was saying earlier. Like, you have to be true to your voice. Like, I'm never gonna to write something that doesn't feel like it's it's doesn't feel like it's authentic to me right like at the, end of the, write, at the end of the day yeah yeah like i write weird crazy shit so i'm always gonna write weird crazy shit yes but <laughs> but like if i need to tone it down and make it a little more accessible to get the point across that i'm trying to get like i'm okay with doing that right like if i have a play that i feel like is breaking boundaries in other ways i'm okay with it being a little more normal if that makes sense mm -hmm. more uh sustainable for the human like ear yeah 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 more like um more like a quote-unquote normal play i guess is the best yeah, way yeah. of describing it right like more yeah it's it's tough because it like is. i said i'm trying to make work that's accessible but i also he, the worst thing you could ever tell me is that there was any part of the play that you were bored and you checked out as an audience member. So I'm like always writing to that goal and always trying to, to push boundaries, but to a point. But at the same time, I get that like, you know, it matters how, especially, you know, I feel like as an Asian American playwright, so little Asian American representation in theater. And it's like, if the, if i only go out there and put crazy Asians that's gonna be weird because there's no other representation for it right so it's like I, I definitely do feel a little bit of an obligation but at the end of the day like that's why there's other players who are, who are filling in that that range right mm -hmm. like you have fucking brilliant playwrights like Celine Song, who's, mm. I don't know if you guys saw Endlings, but that was just like one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. And, you know, playwrights like David Henry Wong, like they're all doing different things and it's filling in the full picture of the Asian American experience. Mm. And, you know, I'm never going to write the kind of plays that they would write, but that's okay. So it's like, I think together we'll fill in the, the picture and the, and it's hard sometimes, right? Because like something I feel about theater is that it feels like you're constantly in competition with the other people like in your community, right? Especially mm -hmm. like within your sort of like, like I feel like I, I'll just say for myself, I often feel like I'm in competition with other Asian playwrights because like if that Asian playwright is getting the spot in the season, I'm not getting a spot in the season because when is the show, when is the theater company ever going to do two plays by two Asian writers in the season, right? Yeah. They're not going to do that. So it's like you feel like you're in competition with them. But I think we actually, by working together, we're doing more for the community as a whole. And we got to like break down those, those kind of like, fake tensions between each other. Right, exactly. And piggybacking off of your last answer, off of your last sentence, really, as the theater industry and the film industry begin to rebuild, adjust to what, after the country having been put on pause, what are some changes, specific changes that you would like to see come out of those two industries as we move forward and start to like rebrand ourselves and regrow, like grow again. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously like everyone, I think I just want more representation, more stories from people that I, I haven't heard their stories yet in any way, shape or form. And I think like, it would just be great to have 
a full gamut of Broadway shows starring people of color, right? right. Like I feel yeah. like off Broadway is just letting people of color in the door. And I think like, why can't we just keep going, you know, and, and, and having that representation to a wide audience, right? Because Broadway is like, this is sad, but Broadway is like where the people go, right? It's where tourists go. It's mm-hmm. where, it's where you can hold the most people. So like, let's get people of color on those stages so that we can share those stories with more people. Yeah. And I love how your answer reminds me of the power of writing really brings people together. So I wanted to really question the idea of, do you think writers are in control of how people think? Or or I'll say this because I was reading a I was listening to a lecture by James Baldwin probably last month, and he was saying how art doesn't change people's minds, but it gives them the thought to or the ability to like want to change their minds. So it's like having that power or like have just thinking of what he said, do you think you you have the ability to make people want to be more diverse in theater when they hear Mei Ling's story, when they hear Kai's story, when they hear about We Are Wombats and, forgive me, I'm blanking on the production assistant's name in We Are Wombats. The one who... uh, Oh, Johnny. Johnny, 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 yes. Like when we hear like Johnny's story, it's like... (laughs) Yeah, Johnny's story. Um... (laughs) Oh my gosh! Did you guys see Wombats? Yes, I, yeah. I, I was yeah, the, the guy who played Johnny killed it that night. I was <laughs> oh I was gosh. dying at what he did. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like, well, like, so so when you saw Wombats, when you left the theater that night, what was your what did you hope to see change in theater? Like, because because you want to hear more of Johnny's like people like Johnny's story. Like, what do you think? the theater industry and the film industry can do to really make sure that we see more voices. Cause I feel like it's, it's, it's easier said than done. Just be like, Oh yeah, we'll just, you know, produce more of people like Johnny's stories. But I feel like there is a, um, we're at a standstill of wanting these stories to be made and like them actually being created. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I I think you answered your own question there where it's Maybe. like <laughs> where it's like now now is the time, you know? We have voices like Megan. We we have these these people that are now getting a chance hopefully. I mean, no, they they we are. We are. It 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 is up to us. It's it's not oh, will will our society will the the white older people in power, will they let us in the door? I think the days of that sort of patriarchy in the arts is over. And I think it's up to us to, to make the doors to ourselves. De- yeah, to demand it, to say we're yeah. here and these are our stories. And I these see the that with the young blood program. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as... As we conclude, I think we have to start concluding the interview, but um, I just wanted to know, let's say if you're, I don't know how, a nice way to say this, but like, let's say if you were going to die like today, <laughs> um, oh what what would you hope your legacy would be to the, with the voices that you create and the people you hope to hear these voices? This is going to sound very dark, but I often think about, like, what if I die right now? Yeah. Without because we can't help a thought like that with – because I feel like 2020 reminded us more than ever of our own mortality. <laughs> and just like, damn, I might not be here, like, next year because, yeah. like, who knows? Yeah. And it's a scary thought to think, but I think it's a very crucial thing that we all, you know, whether you claim to be an artist or not, people to just remind each other of well it's healthy because it keeps you present absolutely you know, to know absolutely another no moment is not yeah, given. absolutely so it's like when you think of your legacy specifically like how do i want to reach people what do you hope to be what do you hope that would be if your time was up that's a really tough question i don't know you know 
as an artist, like I hope that my work resonates with someone. And I think, I, I think if just one person felt like seen mm. by something mm. I put on, on, uh, on the page, that would make me happy. Right. Like if some person who'd never seen themselves res- represented in art felt like, Hey, like that's a story where I can see myself or I can relate to that because that, that would mean more than anything to me, you know, like I don't, as an artist, like, of course, obviously you want to make powerful work, but to me, weirdly at the end of the day. Sorry, we can't hear you. We cut out. Oh, there we go. Oh, wait. (laughs) <laughs> the audio just cut out. Oh no! Oh wait, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, you're back. You're back. Um, <laughs> can you just repeat like the last ten seconds of what you said? <laughs> I think your audio cut out. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, I was just saying that I think that you know what's most important to me, uh, as an artist, like you always want to make a lasting impact, and that's always been important to me. And like I said, like having my work seen. But at the end of the day too, like the thing that matters most beyond that to me is always being like being a good daughter, being a good partner, being a good dog mom, like those kind of things are what matter at the end of the day. And the art is like the icing on the cake for me. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel about it. So I'm not precious about anything I do. And I, but I just hope that it, hope that it impacts somebody else. I fucking love that. I fucking love that answer. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Megan, it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Absolutely. It was a a real honor. So lovely to talk to both of you. And thank you so much for having me. This has been a real treat. I'm a big fan of your guys' podcast. I loved your interview with Danya. What a that was to listen to and and i'm excited for what's to come for you guys exactly exactly yeah thank you so well, much we'll be in contact um thank you megan uh yeah, yeah, yeah. stay that... safe stay you know all that stuff stay well stay yeah all, all of it all of it yeah sounds good guys all right lots of love good one peace This episode of Through the Mic was recorded, mixed, edited, and hosted by Will Aaron Freund and Malcolm Calendar. Thank you to everybody who made this show possible. We wouldn't be able to do it without you. If you like the show, share it with your friend. Let's keep the conversation going.